Welcome to Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. We're here to help you take your health, fitness, and mindset to the next level. It's time to level up. And welcome to today's episode of Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. Today, we are asking the question, when did training become so confusing? <laughs> I feel like this has been a long episode coming because yeah. over the last, I don't know, maybe one to two years, I feel like training on the internet's become so complicated and people are just really overcomplicating everything. And it's leading to this like worldwide confusion. And I really want to be able to just go through some of the topics that we've been seeing come up on the internet and just bring a bit more context and clarity to them. Yeah, so we're going to sort of have our uh, educated discussion around, yeah, as you said, the topics or the debates that are sort of out there and and maybe just have an overview of maybe why influencers, you know, people in the industry, why they feel the need to reinvent the wheel, why they feel the need to try and have a point of difference. You know, mm. having a point of difference, we spoke about it in last week's episode or two weeks ago um, around niche marketing and all of that. But mm. It comes to a time and a place where it's like, guys, you know, just just stop confusing everyone. Stop focusing on the 1% details. It's like in order to truly help someone, you need to start simple, build the foundations, mm. and then ask ourselves, well, what are we trying to cover up with all this scientific jargon, jargon and lingo, you know? Mm. Um, often those who, you know, you might have parts coming up where you don't feel smart enough and all of that, and you feel the need to overcompensate uh, in those ways, but it's just not helpful. So yeah, it's always interesting to see a post to go, hmm, why are they so aggressive when just trying to teach someone how to squat? It's like, oh, something's going on there. I know. I think some people take it so seriously as well. That's where I have to zoom out and I'm like, oh God, like destroying your reputation is not worth like arguing over the degrees that you press at or something. Do you know what I mean? I think so many people do it. It must be, I don't want to be sexist or anything, but I I don't feel like a lot of women do it. Is that sexist to say? Like, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of aggressive natured arguments from females. Yeah. There's a lot Mm. of misinformation, um, but I, I don't know. And I could be just, I don't know, I could be biased here, but I just feel like whenever I've had conversations with females, they're usually a little bit more receptive um, to being able to take on feedback and sort of be flexible and go, oh yeah, it does depend. But sometimes I just see arguments and again, I don't want to be sexist, but it's usually always men that are just like so driven and like aggressive and, and certain um, towards being on one side of the fence. I don't know if that's just me. I mean, I suppose, yeah, like there are a lot of figureheads out there um, speaking from from a masculine part, like, you know, we've got masculine and feminine energy and and to be put in the bracket of speaking from ego and and sort of, um, yeah, just, just being on, it's very masculine trait. So it makes mm. sense why you've made the connection um, between sort of males and females, uh, not to mention, you know, the the mass or the industry was very masculine you know decades ago and the women are emerging so maybe it's just a timing thing kind of like women in sports you know that mm. women are you know we you, even you and I and, and other awesome people have made our sort of mark in the industry but then if people are referring to decades ago it was a very male driven industry as well um and uh, I don't know yeah I think you could be right but look there are <laughs> females um out there as well who who try and follow suit but at the end of the day just mm. before you make a post or jump on board or you know get triggered and react mm. you know aggressively it's like am I about to ruin my reputation 
think oh, about it, guys. So Even though I've had to take a breath and if I see a post, I'm like, oh, my God, what are they doing? Or I, I yeah. might have sort of sent one to you and whatever and sometimes Oh, you, we have a little bit of a laugh. We have a debrief and then we give each other space <laughs> to just take a breath and then just sit back with the popcorn. It's like, oh. but if it's something that we truly believe in, we then down the track deliver it in a way that is nice rather than saying this person's, you know, um, an idiot or rather than saying this is the only way. We just give our advice on what's worked for us, but then we also admit if we change our mind or if something hasn't worked. So mm. I love that we have that and today will be interesting, but we're going to come from it without bias. Obviously, we've got our own knowledge and experience and our own ways of doing something, but we're not here to sort of tear people down. We want to make an episode to say, hey, Try and look at it from both sides and then pick your side and get on with it. Mm. I'm always on the fence of like, look, this is my opinion. Take it or leave it. Like I don't really care if you don't <laughs> want my opinion. You don't have to agree with me the same way as I don't have to agree with you. Yeah. But on the opposite side of the fence, I just see a lot of this like black or white um, sort of speaking and thinking and and with that becomes you know, a little bit of like dominance in that area as well. But something that I think is like really important just to even like name right at the start is that we do have our own biases. And even though you said like, oh, you know, we don't have biases, that's a bias. We all have them, but we don't lead from them. Like we don't, yes. we don't, I don't go, Danny, you must believe everything that I say and think <laughs> because I have personal biases because I've had a different life and different experiences mm. through Danny and vice versa. So we all have our own unique lens and I honestly think emotional intelligence is the number one most important skill that everyone in business and the world can have. Because when you have emotional intelligence, um, underneath that is self-awareness to go, well, not everyone has to agree with me. Uh, we all have different lenses, different experiences. Uh, and, you know, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? Like <laughs> there it is. So many ways. <laughs> so when we have that piece of emotional intelligence, we can zoom out and not get so triggered by people making statements that might go against what we say we learn to accept and go that's cool like you can do that I don't mind if you want to do that um I know what's worked for me what I like what I enjoy what I believe in what my values are and just because that doesn't align with you it doesn't mean one I don't like you it doesn't mean that you're a bad person I think that's really important because a lot of people go like like they get a negative name for it sort of like you know that's just their belief and that's so okay let them go off in their own lane and you just stay in yours so the first thing is like everyone has their own personal biases and we just have to name that right from the start yeah I don't know why I said we don't <laughs> I knew what you maybe meant, I meant we're not going I meant we're not going to push our personal yes, biases in a way I mean. that they deliver it yeah cool thanks you so much for clearing that up um but it's like when you have dinner with like family members or something or you catch up with someone that young for a while and all of a sudden they mm. are just so about talking about their opinion and then it's like they don't account for anyone else in the room or like they don't want to be challenged or it's like no this is the best so and so or you know oh people you know politics religion all of those yes. things that you just oh, I hate talking about around people like that because it's like stop trying to push things on me but it's 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 like 
Oh, I'm getting fired up just in a fun, playful way. But we've all been in that situation and it's a great way to to disconnect yourself from everyone because if you are like that, you mm. might have your, your tribe of little followers and all that, but mm. it's a good way to chase people away from you. So there's nothing more attractive to a person or even, you know, personal relationships than someone who wants to learn. They're inquisitive. They they ask for help. You know, they're okay with with um, changing their mind or just being open-minded. I love those qualities in people, whether it's at work, whether it's, you know, having a conversation with someone, personal relationships, friendships, you have to be open-minded, guys. Mm, It's the number one trait that I look for in coaches and mentors. Like if someone's fixed in their ways, I don't want to learn from them, to be honest. Like I want to know that they're flexible, that if new research or new evidence or new ways of doing things comes out, they're going to be open to receiving that. Um, I think it's so important and so undervalued as a quality just in coaches, but then in people like in general as well. So Mm. super important, super important. Yeah, so I suppose (laughs) the evidence-based industry, you know, (laughs) evidence-based physio, evidence-based this and that. You know, you you do. Everyone's evidence-based. Like you just put evidence-based and you're (laughs) evidence-based. Yeah, it's gotten to the point where that doesn't mean anything anymore, like the phrase trust the process. You know, it's been butchered so much and it's like it's almost lost value. I mean, I do follow some people with that in their terms and there's some really entertaining people on Instagram with those words in there but then you I've even like I would have sort of new grads um who've just literally graduated or they're still studying popping in my dms going that's great but where's the paper on this and I'm like excuse me (laughs) 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 and these people are so fixated on it must be written in a study otherwise it doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and I love using the example of like well Where's the study proving that parachutes exist? You know, you can't have a study on everything. You know, you're not going to jump out of an aeroplane without a parachute and go, oh, whoops. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? So studies Mm. are great, but when you're so fixated on this must be tested and trialed, otherwise it doesn't work, then it's a dead end because out of all the scenarios in all of humankind, decades and decades and, you know, centuries, I should even say, there's not going to be a paper on every single scenario. And if there is a paper, again, that paper is going to have its flaws and biases. Who was the study group that it was looking after? You know, everyone considers themselves as a trained athlete, but what does that even look like? Um, Sample sizes might be small, so many factors. So it's really important just to not be so fixated on where's the study? Yeah, it's a really good point because I think with studies, people don't realize that research comes after, like it's not before, do you know what I mean? Like they're researching something that they developed a, a like a, a conclusion in or, or they hypothesize and they want to research it further to see if it's actually true. So there's, and research can take 10, 20, 30 years to actually be ingrained into an industry, a very long period of time. Um, I remember this in like healthcare, they were saying on average 10 to 15 years for um, a policy to actually come into the hospital once it's been researched. It doesn't automatically get um, put in place because then once they've got something that's high 
hypothesize, they then need to do further studies and research. And then at the end of that article, it says more research is needed to generalize this to the population. (laughs) And it's like, can you ever rely on that? Like we also need to be relying on our subjective um, experience and like our own personal experiences because that's really important and no one's going to research those things, especially when you realize that only 6% of the population in studies is females. Like how can you generalize that to women or the population that you're actually or the sample size that you're working with so I think when people don't have any background and like I'm grateful for my uni studies because you had to like I remember failing an assignment for you know using a wrong research paper once and they're mm-hmm. like you know this wasn't appropriate and I was like oh I didn't know that that re- like that it was, was not- Wikipedia wasn't it oh, bloody no, I've Wikipedia. done that when I started <laughs> But do you know you I mean? cannot like, use Wikipedia, damn it. Uh, there's, there's articles where people just jump on the internet and they do this mm. with social media. They jump on and they think, oh, well, this is gospel, this is the truth. And it's like, look at the look at the research papers from that research paper. You know, like some of them from like 1990. Is it appropriate? Maybe, maybe not. Like, so it's important to not always think that evidence-based means a conclusion from an outcome. Read the sample size. And I um I love Lane Norton sometimes for this when he gets on and he, he does debunk a lot of the research articles and he, he goes into the actual sample size or the way that they did the study and they go, mm. we can't use this in the fitness industry, guys. Like they're using untrained population or whatever it might be. We forget that because the, like, the less you know, the more you think you know, because you don't actually realize that those pieces are missing from the puzzle. Yeah. And you said that so perfectly. And and it's a big one um, with women and even, you know, as we've mentioned before, studies on the ketogenic diet mm. are mainly on males. And, you know, there's in women's health and reproductive, it's hard to actually formulate studies on some situations because it would be inhumane, yeah. you know, to play around with someone's hormones, to have someone in pain and then pr- provoke the pain mm, like unethical. it's it can be quite difficult to actually have studies on that you know even around um being pregnant and and things like that due to it actually being inhumane and it's mm. not legal to have the opposite side as part of the sample yeah um not to mention it can as you said the years that it takes millions of dollars to make mm-hmm. a study so if someone has come up with something that works for their clients and they're you know in quite a professional um, part of their career or time, why? if you know it works, why would you waste all those years or spend all those years and money just to get a piece of paper when what you're doing every day works anyway? So mm-hmm. it's like weigh that up too, guys. I think people are just sort of, they get a bit excited. They log on to PubMed or yeah. Google Scholar. You have a look at the title and, and, you know, good on people for being curious in research and that's fantastic. But it's actually a skill to be able to read the research. Like you said, you did in uni, I did it in uni as a unit. You actually learn how to read research and it is very challenging and unfortunately it's not as easy as just reading the abstract. No, if it was, uni would have been a breeze. (laughs) <laughs> you got to pay for half the articles as well if you actually want to yes. get the good stuff um yeah, so there's a, there is a there is a gap there too and I think yeah I remember doing a subject called research and I hated <gasps> it guys I hated it I was like I'm never gonna need this this is so stupid oh man I hated it with passion but now I actually look back and I'm like oh, I'm actually thankful like I can somewhat interpret um evidence like mm. I think I was reading somewhere the other day and it was saying that 
worldwide, the average uh, literacy or um, like ability to read is up to a year five level on average. Yeah. So I found that really interesting because I was like, wow, like how many people on the internet do you to get up on their high horse and go evidence-based, like hypertrophy, like, you know, (laughs) muscle fibers, blah, 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 internal rotation. Like, and I'm like, does anyone understand what they're saying? Like if the average, literally, right? And this is why I think there are so many influences on the internet freaking killing it because people understand them. And that's reality, Mm. guys. If you can't do a little bit of both and actually speak to your um, clients and your customers and your target audience in a way that they understand and dissect that evidence, um, you're going to lose out. And I love sort of trying to get in the middle of that too. Like I feel like I have that skill where I can interpret like some of the evidence and understand like, you know, muscle physiology and all that sort of stuff. But then I also know what it feels like to be on the opposite end of the pendulum and, and not understand. So I try and sit myself in the middle and use a lot of that um, lingo or understanding and go, okay, well, what's needed? What's actually helpful for people? What's not helpful? And Mm. I think people get mixed in that because a lot of people love taking the one percenters and the things that might be really nuanced and sexy and clickbait and all that sort of stuff, which is fine, like Mm. each their own. But then something I'm always like, okay, is this helpful or does this hinder people? Because if it's like helpful, then we should be preaching it. But if it's actually hindering people, then there's always going to be like you know, that little bit of like ethical um, jargon there as well. But then I also wanted True. to mention quickly, like just with the influencer side of stuff, sometimes I see some things and it's it's not harmful and I'm like, oh, it's probably not like 100% right, um, but it's not hurting anyone. Um, and you can take that however you want. But I think it's important to be able to sort of zoom out and look at the bigger picture when it comes to some of these statements that are just being thrown out. Yeah, look, if it's for a laugh and you know they're being cheeky and they they damn well know that it's clickbait and it's going to cause an uproar, all right, great, whatever. It's going to get your views. But it gets to the point where it's like I've seen posts from people um, who have, you know, over a million followers, very big in the industry um, giving out advice, for example, on back pain when I know them personally or people that know them personally and I know that they've had chronic back pain for so long yeah. and it's like are you trying to overcompensate for what's happening to you and mm. and it can get to a point where it's so dangerous, you know, preaching low-calorie diets or preaching, you know, <laughs> movement under high loads and volume. Mm. It's like it, it's it's straight physics, it's straight science, like, you don't need to say the opposite dangerous opinion. Is it worth the likes? It's not nice. I reckon it's it's not nice to trick people. Um, but again, you have to look deeper and say, what are they overcompensating for? Why are they trying to challenge the straight up facts and evidence? They're trying mm-hmm. to make a point of difference. Are they trying to make money? Yes. You know, there's so much that's deeper into it. And I suppose that's why we're here on the podcast to to have our listeners and and our viewers, you know, hear our reasoning um, because we just want to help people because it is getting very blurred. And I love what you said about the lingo, you know, you love to sit in between, but, you know, it's about reading the room. If you're talking to your coaches, you'll sort of step up the lingo because they actually want to learn that stuff. If you're talking to a newbie client that have signed on, you're not going to go into all of that to that level. So it's really about reading the room and reading your clients. And that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned when I started my seminars. 
um, you know, standing next to Andrew, who's like a, there's an encyclopedia or, or a genius brain. And, and then I'm like, in my head, my limiting beliefs came up and said, oh my goodness, how am I going to compete with like 40 years of being in the game and, and all of that. And we had a chat to each other. And that was the first lesson that he taught me was be able to simplify everything. Like, talk in such clear language that they understand. If they ask a question that requires, you know, challenging words, scientific terminology, great, you can answer it. But as a general whole, and, you know, when presenting at seminars, when seeing clients, present it in a way where they can walk away and understand what the hell you're talking about. Because we've all been in that situation and I'm always bringing up, you're at the GP probably when we were younger and hadn't studied. And then it just scares the crap out of you when they use words that you don't understand and then you feel incompetent. And that is not nice. Mm. So if you actually know what you're talking about, you will know how to dilute it in a way that is received by your audience. Yeah, I really love that point. And it actually underpins, I guess, the theme of what we're going to be talking about today, which is who are you speaking to, right? It's the piece that everyone forgets to mention because content needs context, but it's really tricky to do that on Instagram. Yeah. It's impossible to do that on TikTok. <laughs> it's impossible. While you're dancing, you're trying oh, to teach like 10 years of like, uni. <laughs> if you've got seven seconds to get someone's attention span. And look, I fully acknowledge that there is two sides to everyone. Like for us, yeah. Danny, like for the business owners, we need to be like Mark. Marketing is what we need to be good at. We need to be good marketers, but we also need to be good coaches. Um, So we need to find that middle ground to be able to get the best of both. And this is honestly one of the main reasons why we started the podcast because I I was like, I can't do justice on Instagram. Like, you know, I can create content on Instagram, but I can't give the level of context that I want to. And that's okay because Instagram is not really designed for that. So you need to pick your platforms where you're actually getting advice from. And I believe we've mentioned this before, but um, audience like long-form audio, whether that's in the form of a podcast or an Audible or a YouTube, they're my favourite places to actually learn from. So I might pick up a concept from Instagram, but then I'll I'll try and get more context from another platform because no one's learning much off Instagram, to be honest. We're getting exposed to different ideas, tips and tricks and hacks and personalities, but we shouldn't be learning. And I say this all the time, like don't save your workouts from Instagram. Like don't don't try and like actually take the content from there and apply it to your life. I think um, it's important to know where you're getting that information from and really understanding from the opposite side for the creators and the business owners and the coaches, understanding who you're speaking to. So I'd love to hear from you, Danny. Like when mm. you first started, because you've gone through like a bit of the evolution as well of like, um, you know, starting on the gym floor and, you know, working with like gen pop beginner clients and then now like having your seminars and then doing everything sort of in between like you you shared your main learning lesson there but is there anything else that was like really surprising for you when you're going through that transition of how to effectively get your message across yeah it's interesting because it's the battle of trying to gain or gaining authority through demonstrating what you know but then it's an art form to come across in a non-egotistical way like everyone else, you know. It's our job to show that our clients can be comfortable coming to us because we know what we're doing through practice on ourselves, through time, you know, on the battlefields. Like we've done the work, but then it's just been a real art form in terms of being able to mould who you're talking to because, you know, you and I can have quite an intellectual conversation, but then that'll be boring for most people. Mm. And, you know, even myself, like even I trail off if someone's just jabbering on about something. So 
I think it's been awesome going through that. It's like, cool, how do I show that I'm the authority, but then be relatable and fun and, and all of that. And my attention always goes back to sort of the lower part of the lingo spectrum, if we're to word it in that way, like layman's terms will always win. And, you know, whether that includes talking to other allied health professionals, you know, we have a lot of normal gym goers come to the seminars or even people who have been physios or health professionals for decades, but it is still always received better in layman's terms. And for those who aren't talking to other healthcare professionals or, you know, people in the industry, coaches, most people out the gym door. And I had this conversation with um with our manager yesterday who's taking on clients as well because it's so humbling going back into the gym now and seeing these guys grow their business. I had to tell her and, and she's like, Danny, oh, my God, like my client didn't even know what her quad was. And I go, literally 90% of people out there outside of our fitness bubble have no idea. So if we're trying to, you know, chew their ear off about biomechanics, insertions, origins, you know, time under tension, they will just drift off with the fairies and probably never come back, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even like recently when I did the, um, like I did a coach the coaches mentorship, I, I think it like we can get so consumed and go, I want to know about, moment arms and resistance profiles and strength curves and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, who? my first question is like, who are you working with? Cool. It's like, you know, do you think that they care? Do you think it actually matters? <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I think like there's a lot of trendy things like, you know, um, like I said, like length to tension relationship in terms of like shortened and lengthened muscle groups. Like everyone's talking about that. And I'm like, guys, we've been doing that subconsciously for so long, programming mm-hmm. in that way. Um, These tiny nuances, like if you follow the principles of, proper programming and exercise selection, you're probably going to cover a lot of this stuff anyways. And then you can layer on top of that. But I think coaches are really so invested in understanding, which is amazing. Don't get me wrong, but they're doing this before they've consolidated the foundations and they're like coming to these nuanced things before they've actually spent the time doing like, you know, really understanding movement patterns or really understanding cueing or setup or exercise selection and doing it before that. So I think, yeah, that, that context of who your work, working with or who you're speaking to actually helps with a lot of this confusion because generally the confusion is confusing because they're all speaking to different sample sizes. You're right. And the sample size that is receiving the really complicated stuff is like a tiny percentage Mm -hmm. of people, tiny, 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 tiny percentage of people. And you know, the one that kills me where people use degree, like you need your arms at X degrees, but when it's one that's not 189 to 45 because fair enough zero that's your 72 degrees 72 degrees you know (laughs) must be at 36 degrees for a kickback for it to work glute means and it's like that can't be correct Mm -hmm. because we all have different anatomy we've got let's just take the glutes for example we've got different hip sockets different sized muscles, you know, different length of our bones, different everything. And just to be so specific to one degree, unless you've literally just spent hours on that one person, you've looked at every ounce of them, you've seen their MRIs and their internal structures, Mm -hmm. 
it's actually impossible to prescribe a movement to the exact degree like mm. but it's just such a waste of time yeah it's like why are you doing this it's such a great opinion um and I think my my um taking that on that has also evolved a lot whereas like right at the start I probably used to prescribe people not angles I never did that but more specific stances or specific grips or whatever it might be whereas now I'm more along what's comfortable for you like what feels most right for your structure your anatomy like where do your feet want to go where do your arms want to go obviously you know given restraint but even with yeah. um what you were saying there like I have like in my own exercise library like I have a standard kickback but I also have an equivalent of like a glute made angled kickback but I don't give a degree so I say angled kickback yeah like, somewhere good. in between there that's probably going to feel because naturally we move in a way that feels right for our body right and I think cueing actually stuffs a lot of people up when we over cue and say you must do this tiny mm. little thing for the wrong person it can lead them doing something awkward that doesn't actually align with their body so I'm really curious like for you is is that similar, like I guess a similar way that you look at cueing people and setting people up in exercises as well? Yeah, and and thanks for throwing it back to me as well. Completely agree with what you said. Like it's about giving guidelines, but mm. that what what makes me you know um, feel a bit icky about the whole thing is when people don't have the capacity to be able to give guidelines or to you can just tell that they're not working with people. Mm-hmm. Like they've worked straight out of a textbook. Or, you know, again, reading a study, it's like we need to be able to work with people, still give them guidelines and cues because that's how you teach a movement. But to be so specific will not help them because it might not fit their body size. As you said beautifully, you know, work with what feels comfortable for them. Everyone's Mm -hmm. got different stances. Everyone's got, you know, different um, upper body mechanics and all of that. So it is very important to give that guideline. Um, and then teach them how to work within that. And and then you work as a team, not just here's the study, this is what my book says, go do this. It's yeah. um yeah, that's a big like red flag and real eye opener to kind of say, hmm, are these people actually working with clients? Mm. Maybe not. Mm. And then, yeah, don't think so. And that's why coaching and like personal training is an art and a science. Mm. Like you can have the science component of it. Like I think everyone should have a backbone of somewhat being evidence-based. We're not just to make concepts up no. and go, well, no, progressive overload's not real. Like I've heard people literally say programming, you don't need to follow one. And I'm like, are you right? Like, are you okay? <laughs> okay um like that's like saying you know the sky isn't blue I think everyone can see that that's clear for us um but there's also going to be uh like you said where we rely on personal experience and what we've been through and I know a lot of people throw shade at that as well and Mm. they go oh well just because that's worked for you it doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone yeah duh but if you've worked (laughs) with a number of people and it's worked for the majority like there's probably a good like causation correlation sort of um, direction there and the other piece with evidence-based is a lot of research it's not longitudinal like it's not over a long period of time it's it's short it's eight weeks it's like how are you really going to say that this leads to glute growth for eight weeks like maybe it did for them but then what's the progression from that mm-hmm. or of course maybe a severe calorie restriction works for four weeks but then what like no one's researching the after effect and yep. that is so important because who cares what you achieve in eight weeks like what about eight years like what about the follow-on and this is when experience for people that have been in the game 
game um, on the gym floor or practicing what they've been preaching for a long period of time, this is when we have to rely on that because the researchers are actually relying on these people to know what to research in the first place. Yeah, and it's so important to actually put yourself in a position where you are training, you know, if we're talking about Mm. training or or you are playing the sport that you're talking about so you know what it feels like on your body. Um, There's a lot of shoulder specialists out there that um, encourage training of the traps and research quote unquote has stated that if you hold your arms out from your side 30 degrees so 30 degrees away from your body and shrug upwards you will get more traps than down by your side Mm. makes sense and that's great but the study stated only carrying two kilos and that's nice you can have you can hold two kilos out the side of your body but for someone trying to add load and and grow their traps for hypertrophy Imagine holding 50 kilos out by your side. Mm. It is impossible or X amount of kilos. Some of these guys, you see them doing shrugs, like pulling the gym or whatever, shrugging plates, like 80, 100 more. I'll just exaggerate in case he says, no, I live way more than that. You know, (laughs) hundreds of kilos, physically impossible to hold it out 30 degrees out of your arm. What if you were using a cable or leaning? Could do, Mm. could do. But these are the people that are saying, no, you must never hold anything by your side because it's not 30 degrees so I love that straight away you became innovative instead of saying well that's false and that's what makes you a good coach you know straight away you think outside the box you know you go great it might be impossible to do this let's use this and still work within that but if cables or leaning still doesn't do the job have it by your side it's not the end of the world Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes back down to you don't know what you don't know. And if you're not on like doing the work, it blows my mind that there's honestly coaches out there like coaching people in aspects that they've never, they've never walked the path of. And I'm not saying that, you know, like you need to be doing exactly like, you know, you don't need to be shredded, for example, to coach people to get shredded. Like you don't Mm. need to be that, but you need to know, like you need to have skin in the game. I want to say like you need to subjectively and objectively know when's it, when's it appropriate to rely on evidence? um, And when is it appropriate to rely on experience? Mm. And obviously you don't have access to the latter if you've never done it. If you've never actually had the experience in that, then how you're going to and we all start somewhere by the way like we all start with no experience that's just the way it is and that's why I'm so big on using yourself as an experiment like I do all my own training programs I trial everything I don't program a single exercise that I've never done Um, and I think it's so important because I need to know how to set it up how it feels what that superset feels like Mm. feeling is so important it's not just about the facts even though facts we want to be guided by feelings are actually going to steer us in the in the direction and allow us to make better decisions because we're not working with textbooks. We're working with people, biology, like physiology. We're working with people as, as beings and not just like facts. Yeah. And that's perfect. I mean, um, we were having a discussion off air when we were planning the notes and it's like, you know, you must have experience, but then you don't have to have had all the knowledge. For example, it would be like someone having a baby and then all of a sudden saying, no, I've had a baby. I'm a way better midwife than you. I know how to deliver babies. I know how to do this and that. So it can definitely work both ways. You need to have some skin in the game is what you said. And you need to have that experience because that's the problem with allied health. Like in that industry, there are still so many practitioners advising to stop training. And Mm. the reason why they do that is because they don't train. They don't understand the benefits. So 
they wouldn't feel good prescribing something that they know nothing about, which is fine. But then my issue is when they instill fear into the other person. It's so fine if they say, hey, I don't actually train myself. It's not one of my hobbies. I will refer you on to someone who can help you. But there's still an epidemic of people who don't train instilling that fear. That's when I have a problem with it. And again, it goes back to people who are open-minded. We'll never have a problem with people who are open-minded, happy to refer out or within someone in their team. It's like, just don't be so closed-minded on your opinion because that will elicit fear in who you're dealing with. And then again, it's the chain of events. And at the end of the day, we're here to help people. And it Mm -hmm. starts with us being open-minded. Well, I also didn't realize that a lot of physios, you don't learn much about exercise programming or like structuring programs in uni. Well, physio, osteo, chiro, most of them. Most manual therapy. Exercise physiology. Yeah, a lot. My course, pretty much all manual therapy. Mm. Um, And then we had a couple of units of exercise rehab, but I was always sort of the black sheep amongst, you know, a couple of other people who did train, thank God, because nothing just sat well with me at uni. I mean, I was learning, everything I learned in the textbooks was fantastic. Manual therapy is brilliant, but again, it's not allowing opportunity for people to learn all sides of what's needed for someone to be truly healthy and move pain-free and well. Um, So it's kind of naive that in a five-year degree, you only have two years worth of exercise knowledge so that's when people say oh should I do osteopathy I go if you want but you're not going to learn anything that I talk about on Instagram so good luck like the learning happens from external sources and we're always about that right absolutely like it doesn't matter what industry you're in because curriculums are governed by evidence (laughs) to be honest well yeah here we are (laughs) they're, they're governed by um you know particular ways and even when I was at uni like especially with um nursing was a bit more evidence clinical but when I was doing midwifery it was it's very like subjective in terms of like oh you know it sort of depends on how she's feeling like Mm. positions like there's not a huge amount of evidence to be honest like a midwife used to be seen as like witchery um where it was like yeah it was like in America for example midwives don't exist um that's not a real thing it's not a profession over there who Um, delivers the babies um, oh, I'm probably going to butcher this, and I know. Um, but I think like it's um, obstetric nurses, obstetric oh. nurses, um, and they're like our obstetricians, I believe. So they don't have, and it's very sterile. So it's all like you know, seizures are the way to That's go. A bit it's, sad. Yeah, it's very different to Australia. Um, we have great maternity over here, but this is why it's important to understand that this is in every industry. It's not just the fitness industry, but no. because the fitness industry, there's a low point of entry. Do I dare say? Like, it doesn't take much to become a personal trainer or an online coach or gain a following. It doesn't take much, um, and you usually don't need any form of qualification or anything, which is not a bad thing either. I'm not saying it is, um, but it's just a low point of entry, and it's highly saturated. So that's why there's a lot of information out there um but usually governing what they know what they think they know right and you don't know what you don't know and if someone's not invested in their own learning and mentoring along the way um and they just stick to their way and their practices you know 
forever, they're only going to be exposed to what they know, right? And they're not yeah. going to ever step out of their comfort zone and learn new things and be challenged in new ways, which is so important. Mm. Um, I was listening to this book the other day about community. They were talking about what builds community and embraced such a great point that community is built when a collective group of people band together and rally for the same purpose. And I was like, yeah, that's so true. Love like when that. there's like a, a passion for something, they're like, yeah, I back you. I believe you. That's great. I'm all for it. That's what builds a community. Um, a community is not just a group of people. Again, it's rallying together for a collective purpose. Um, think about if you have a collective purpose with someone and you rally together and you're passionate about something, you're only going to attract people for that community. So you're going to be reinforced mm. for that exact same message. So if you don't surround yourself with other people or be exposed to the counter side or the counter arguments, you're only ever going to be reinforced by people going, hell yeah, Danny, I back you. You're so right, queen. Like you're only <laughs> going to be reinforced by those messages rather than being challenged. Right. And this is what actually creates us to grow. If we go, oh, but what would it look like if you use cables? Like, what would it look like if you did that? What would it look like if you trained three days? Like, what would it look like? Because you'd go, I don't know. I haven't done that. I haven't haven't had experience in that. So then you Mm. ask, what would it look like? And then you gain. And that's how we learn and grow. That is so well put. And it makes so much sense. And um, that's why it is important to meet with people from all walks of life and all of experience because you will take something from them um, Mm. or the opportunity. The opportunities to take new information is only there if you wish to receive it. If people want to stay in their little bubble of, you know, that community and the cheerleaders, then that's fantastic. Um, And I can totally understand how that would happen then. People make those bold statements because they do have people who agree or they might not even agree with what they're saying. They literally just like the person. So we always say the example like someone could say the sky is red and people know damn well it's not, but they love that person so much. They're like, the sky's red, everyone, and they will just (laughs) get around. Like Britney Spears, I brought it up before, in the (laughs) middle of her conservatorship everything she was going through on instagram you still had those people even when she was visibly hurting the poor thing yes queen queen of dancing in your underwear in the lounge room and it's like queen of being off your head it's like can't you see what's happening here you just yeah you've got the cheerleaders her content is wild wild i feel for her but you've got to read the comments read them because someone always says queen of and then just writes whatever she's doing in that post. It's fucking, it's so funny. Yeah. Well, nice. even the other day, and, you know, um, we'll get into some of the, I guess, topics that we wanted to talk about. Jesus, well, it's day, been 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> even the other day, though, I got tagged in a post and it was like, I love when people tag me, they're like, thoughts. And I'm like, no. I'm never going to attack anyone, but thanks for sharing. Um, <laughs> and it was someone and they were like doing um, Russian twists with like a plate and they were saying exercises to avoid if you want, if you don't want a bulky waste. Um, and she oh. was sort of talking about training abs makes the waist bulky. And she was like actively in the caption in the post saying that ever since she stopped doing all of this stuff her waist got thinner and she was slimmer and visibly she's leaner in the um in the after photo of course anyway so I was tagged and it was like thoughts and I was like oh, I'll have a click through the comments there was like 150 comments and like wow. literally it was everyone being like oh my god so helpful thank you so much <laughs> I'm going to stop doing this right now and I'm thinking uh, this is actually when it's damaging and this is yeah. what I was saying is like is it helpful or is it like, is it harmless? Do you know what I mean? Like, whatever. Mm. Like, is it harmless? Like, say this workout, do this thing. That's harmless. Let's be honest. Mm. Is it um, going to hinder people? Like, that sort of messaging. I'm like, man, I spent my whole life 
trying to bust these myths. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then people put this content out and because they've got, quote, unquote, the evidence of them mm. like, before and after, it's one one person, by the way, um, It's it goes against all the work that we do. So it's a great example of, like, you know, how I guess influence can be like perceived in a negative way because they don't have the experience. And honestly, a lot of these people that sell programs to the masses, they're not coaches. And it sort of insults me a little bit when they go, I'm coaching you. I'm like, no, no, no. They brought a product off you, Mm. like a product and a service. They're not in the same category. So when you sell a product, you're not actually coaching someone. That's not the definition of coaching. Um, That's selling. So I think it's really important to understand like, if you want coaching, like, and you want to learn, like it, it's it's different. It falls into a different category because it's going to be customized and depend to you. Yeah. And as we know, changing your body composition or, you know, working towards any kind of uh, nutrition or training goal isn't as simple as just changing one thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't done Russian twists in bloody years, but is my waist tiny? Well, no. Like, it's like, <laughs> well, it clearly doesn't work. And it's like, Maybe she forgot to mention that she was on a 20% deficit. Mm -hmm. Well, the classic was, you know, those ads that used to be on TV and probably still are, like the Ad King Pro. Pro. But then in the after photo, they just got a tan hair and makeup as well. And it's like, wow, you look amazing. Like That stuff kills me. It is marketing at its finest. And then a pure example of the cheerleaders, you know, the people on Australian Idol who sound horrible, but their mum's still in the crowd just cheering them on. (laughs) Good on them for having that. But it can be harmful and misleading, particularly when they're making such bold statements. You know, cutting out Russian twists, fine, but, you know, cutting out a food group or something really detrimental, um, mm. that's when it gets dangerous again and that's when we go, oh, why, why? Yeah, absolutely. And the same, like what you said, I think nutrition's a whole nother ball game because a lot of people have such an emotional attachment to food. So when people just chuck out blanket statements of like, Dairy kills everyone and gluten is the <laughs> devil. Honestly, like I try to not consume much dairy because it, it gives me breakouts. But I yeah. don't say everyone should cut out dairy because I think dairy is a great food group. Mm. And they actually show that it's it's dairy's healthy. Like there's nothing wrong with it. But it's when people come out and go, dairy's really bad for your skin, um, when that's actually false evidence, because bad for my skin doesn't mean it's bad yep. for your skin. That's false evidence. Yeah. Um, that's when it's actually damaging. So you've got to be mindful when people do give yes or no black and white answers and say do this don't do that without any context it's sort of like misleading absolutely time and a place for everything you know and and we'll continue to get into it I won't say we'll get into it because the listeners are gonna be like guys you've been talking for 50 minutes when are you gonna get into it but (laughs) hey we've been we've been on a great roll which is what I love about the the podcast so should we get into the next topic we shall. We want to go through a couple of things that we intended on talking about of like maybe what's confusing in the industry at the moment. And yeah. keep in mind, like I'm not sure, uh, I guess, what background you're listening listening from or what your experience is or what industry you're in um, amongst the fitness industry because I think the jargon that's out there is context dependent of who you're following, who you're listening to and what's going on. Um, but in particular, there's quite a few coaches at the moment sort of like, kicking up the dust and debating with each other and it's all well and good but it is leading to a lot of confusion and like I said it's it's is it helpful I'm not sure so hopefully today we can go through a few of the topics and give a bit of clarity to them. Yeah, and a big one that I'm super passionate about um, naturally because it's what I help teach and what I use with clients um, 
activation of the muscles. But then you get the people who are completely on the opposite scale as well. And again, every topic that Sherelle and I wrote in our list, we had our own little discussion prior. And then we worked out that the key denominator was some people need it, some people don't. Some people need it, some people don't. So again, there's no context on social media. So for the people making posts saying activation, it shouldn't happen, it's no good doesn't work. There's no background in that statement. You can't completely dismiss something um, just because, you know, you haven't done it. And it was Mm. quite ironic. Someone made quite a bold statement um, saying, you know, your activation's bullshit or something like that. And then like two posts later, they're like, I'm quitting powerlifting. I'm not going to lift anymore. And it's like, (laughs) okay, there must be a correlation between you just slamming things that work and then all of a sudden you're throwing in the towel of your life. So it's like, okay, cool. But As a definition, now there's, you know, um, I'll give a simplified definition based on what's been published. Muscle activation results in the ability to produce a new motor task. So the way I love to formulate it or talk about it is putting yourself in positions that allows you to teach your body to move in a certain way. Because let's just say, for example, I'll use the classic example of sitting at a computer desk all day you're hunched over, your shoulders are forward, your hips are flexed. If we went to go pick up a deadlift bar straight away without any activation, without any mobility, without any warm-up, our body has become comfortable and shortened and molded into that computer sitting position. Again, if we bypass all of that warm-up stuff, go straight into the movement, we're going to be more likely to stay in that position in the lift. Now, lifting requires moving your body in all sorts of ways. So you are doing yourself a disservice if you go straight from the computer desk straight into training. You need to get yourself warmed up. You need to have muscles that are ready to start firing again because we do actually have inhibition of certain muscles. For example, the hip flexors, when we're sitting down, they're on, they're working, you know, they're shortened. So What happens when the hip flexors are shortened? The glutes are inhibited because it's physically impossible to sit down with your glutes active because then that'd be straight. So I don't want to confuse the situation. The example would be like doing a bicep curl, right? Your biceps are contracting. Your triceps are loose. You can't do a bicep curl if your triceps are on because your elbow won't move. It'll be stiff if they're both on. One needs to work. One needs to relax. Muscle activation the mobility and the warm-ups, allows the relaxed muscles to come to the party. Mm. That's sort of a generalised way of saying that. Mm. Where do you think the confusion comes from? I think the confusion comes from just, again, people not working in allied health. A lot of influencers, a lot of people who work with um, different clients with different goals. Um, So I've only really learned about specific movements and true exercise breakdown when I started working with people who are in pain because the answer of go straight to the deadlift bar wasn't good enough. These people Mm. had herniated discs. They had hip impingements, you know, they had shoulder pain. I couldn't be naive and say, cool, get yourself in a deadlift position. They physically didn't know how. Or if they tried, they had other muscles that would compensate lower back hamstrings you know anyone who say my hamstrings are really tight that means their hamstrings are overworking therefore their glutes are lacking or something else is lacking so it's like cool 
their dominant muscles are already going to take over. How do we get them in a position in which they can perform the muscle action without allowing their strong muscles to already compensate? Because that's the problem. Mm -hmm. So that's where regressing and progressing comes into it, which we've spoken about so many times, all the time. Mm -hmm. You get your client, you put them on the timeline of how do we regress them before we progress. But for people to say that muscle activation or, you know, quote-unquote rehab-style movements are a joke, they've just gotten their clients and put them straight on the end of the timeline. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Sense. Absolutely. Right. Because like rehab and it's regression, right? Everything we do in training, regression, progression, mm-hmm. we need to know when to regress people. And that's going to look like um, exercise selection is the first one, obviously. It's going to be load, um, which is going to be dictated by exercise selection. Um, and then it's going to be obviously volume and intensity, which comes from that. So regression looks like so many different things. And I personally think like with the um, definition of activation and with where it's been butchered one could you imagine someone getting on and making a piece of content and going now this isn't this might not be for you but it would like <laughs> people wouldn't listen so they go what's the hook they go the one movement you're yeah. doing or the one movement you need to stop or the reason yeah. why you're not making gains like they yeah. do this thing because it's marketing right and that's fine mm. um but it's important as the consumer you know that <laughs> like come on guys let's let's cotton on to this sort of marketing and understand that regression and progression is unclear it's mm. it's not black and wide it's gray because it's going to depend on which direction you need to go in and i honestly think a lot of people have butchered the definition of activation Mm -hmm. to the point where it makes people resent it where it's like i'm sick of people saying activation like this and saying it needs to be done like this and it butchers the definition which you've just said because even when we were talking off air you're like even walking is activation and Mm. i was like oh i can rally for that like Mm. you know and i think a lot of people again like misinformation and confusion it puts a like a sour taste on certain practices um and who it's for and who it's not for and what you just said beautifully there as well is like people with acute and chronic injuries is so different to like your advanced bodybuilder or your advanced powerlifter that's training pain-free and knows what works for them like people are getting sample sizes confused and it's it's like it's amazing when you zoom out and go well, what I program for a client is so dependent on where they're at. Like I need to meet them where they're at. So how can I give blanket statements for everyone? You Mm. can't. Um, And this is how we become really good coaches. Like we become flexible in our practices and we, we apply the context um, to the content and we, we break down some of these definitions to what the actual purpose is and what the thing is and not get emotionally charged by it, guys. Mm. Like I think that's the most important thing because sometimes I just zoom out and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just keeping my finger out of these eyes because <laughs> I'm like, why is everyone so hot and angry? Yeah, yeah. It's really cool, again, that you can look at it objectively. And um, we do have those one topics that sort of get us, and that does, it It gives a little bit of a reaction. I can feel my heart rate increase. I go, oh, you know, but then I take that upon myself to do my um, duty of continuing to educate and just show, okay, this is what I do. And it's, again, not accounted for because most people aren't practitioners. They're not going to have the clients who, again, have just um, herniated a disc. They physically cannot stand up. Some people can't even get on and off the ground that I've mm-hmm. seen. You know, I work with all kinds, whether, you know, your your athletes or musicians and then people that are in that compromised position. And you need to have such a wide 
tool belt and, and vast knowledge of exercises for those people that you are dealing with. So again, people that make those bold statements, they're not qualified in that area, meaning they're not actually allowed to work with the people that need those movements in the first place. So mm. it's a little bit, um, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. But again, those movements aren't exactly Instagram sexy. You know, we yeah. want to see the bars filled up or the hack squats with all the plates. And and that's great too. And every movement can be rehab, but that's my mm. space that I've really tapped into because I see the value of being able to use those tools to then help people in the long run hit their PBs. It's very important. And with trialing it on myself, you know, thousands of clients and all of that, it's just so important to reinstate that that term has been misinterpreted, as you mentioned earlier. People are just, again, throwing it around with their own bias and their own lens where it just actually means practicing a skill, you know, making those neuromuscular connections. For example, trying to teach someone how to squat, that's nice. But if they can't actually, you know, stand on their two feet and and if they've got really weak glutes and their hip flexors and lower back wants to take over, putting them in that squatting position already will not really serve them in a way that the purpose is to strengthen their glutes. So we have to take them all the way down. Some movements involve lying on the ground, mm-hmm. you know. A lot of them, the lock clam, for example, even I still use that as a warm-up because if I'm on the computer all day, my hip flexors are still quite strong. They're just going to take over. So I do do the movements, get up, and then you start upright, and then your warm-up replicates the squat pattern. So you, you take yourself through that evolution of um, of movements. But I really appreciate the space to be able to talk about this because, yeah, it's just something that I'm so passionate about and more people need to know that uh, instead of not training at all, there are specific movements that you can use to open the floodgates again back into the gym. And so then when people say that they're no good, it really hurts my heart because then it means people are just scared because they think their only option is to go right to the end of the scale or there's nothing else they can do. Um, Mm. But, you know, regression is key when you're in that position. Not Mm. to mention, just before I wrap up, (laughs) thanks, Sherelle, not to mention some of the world's best athletes that we work with, you know, professional footballers, um, you know, Olympic lifters, everyone needs some element of a warm-up and mobility. It's just imperative because these people still have muscles that are super strong and compensating. So it's important to have that warm-up. But I would love to get into the discussion of a planned warm-up, like a prescribed one versus not, and then who would benefit. Because I know that uh, we had that discussion off air as well. Mm. I wanted to quote something you said in there that I think is so oh, important. Um, every movement can be rehab. I think that is so important to understand. Put that on a stubby holder and cheers me to it. Because <laughs> honestly, like if you look at a back extension, that can be a teaching tool for hip extension. It can be activation, let's be honest. It can be a way to really fuck up your glutes too if you put a mm-hmm. band and a heavy weight on it. So there's so many ways that you can use an exercise. And even when you were saying about a squat, I was like, oh, you could use a counterweight. Like if they're not appropriate to load, mm-hmm. they could use a um, like a front squat. Um, they could use a safety bar. Like, And this is when we have to understand movement patterns before we understand yep. like exercises and tools to be able to do it. And I think that concept of like, a deadlift could, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, a dead hip, a deadlift could be um like in someone's rehab program, I'm sure, Absolutely. right? Like you need to you need to rehab the actual movement patterns. So mm-hmm. I think it's the 
the the blurry lines between it all and the people that don't help with black and white statements to make it blurry and then make people resent terminology um and take it out of context and not understand that yeah like you said even walking like it, it's it's activation and it's going to be it's going to depend on who you are what you're if you're rehabbing if you're not like what your goals are and you know your day as well and um in that as well, like what you were saying, like something that I do, like I've even had my own journey of being injured along the way as well. And I can look back in hindsight now and look at the things that I was probably not paying close enough attention to. And the biggest thing that stands out for me was load management. Mm-hmm. Um, my load management sucked. And this is honestly because it's a, it's a learn, like you have to learn how to manage your loads. It's actually quite complex to know how much to to, um, I guess, lift and how to progress. And there's no one way. It's really difficult to manage that for someone else, to be honest, unless you're working really, really, really closely uh, with them. But load management was a big one for me and exercise setup. Those were Mm. the two things. When I cleaned up exercise setup and started optimizing that, like some people like they, they just rush into exercises and like I spend like 15, if I, if I need to spend 15 minutes setting up an exercise in terms of like the, the bench and the position and, you know, elevating my feet a little bit and whatever, like some people will probably laugh at the setups that I do, but I'm mm. like, nah, if I need to spend extra time setting up an exercise so I can get the most out of it, that's worth my time, even if it means my session has to be cut short. So exercise set up everything from like how high you position your shoulders for a hip thrust to like, you know, the squat rack to um, making sure I put the barbell so I don't have to pull from the floor for an RDL, like all of those tiny little things that you probably see me do. Um, <laughs> that and then load management were the two biggest things that I did Um as a part of my warm-up, to be honest, yes. um, to make sure that I could get the most out of my workout. That's fantastic. And that goes back to our initial statements of you can't be prescribed a certain degree because you had to have that knowledge and take it upon yourself to, you know, put the bench in a certain way. Or I've, I've seen all your add-ons and I love it. It's it's just so cool. And it really just shows your insight into knowing how the machines work, but then knowing your levers and what feels optimal. So I love when you make those posts and it's it's very important to have that trial and error element into your training, which you beautifully have demonstrated through going, hey, what if I extend this bench out and then put like another bench behind the lap pull down? I thought that was so cool. Um, so yeah, we can't just stick to sort of one prescription because again everyone is so different that might not work for everyone but you've mm. recognized that it's worked for you you encourage people to try it um but then yeah that's the the playful element of training like get used to feeling how your body feels it's quite empowering mm, absolutely because it doesn't matter how good your warm-up is if your setup sucks it just doesn't like you can have the best warm-up in the world but if you're unracking the barbell from you know three pins up or if you're putting your feet <laughs> in the position that you think you should be um you know then it, it's it doesn't matter and I'm always like something I've changed my mind on a lot is queuing uh in general like I used yep. to be sort of I used to probably queue a lot more than what I do now now I feel like I'm just looking at setups more than anything because I find when you put people in the right positions for their body they move the way that they should um for a lot of my clientele anyways and I have never touched wood 
I've never had any <laughs> upper body issues with injuries or anything. And I strongly believe it's because I've never been cued um, to train my upper body in a particular way. But then I've been cued a lot with lower body. Um, I was cued a lot when I was like first to training of how to squat, how to hinge, which is fine, which is, of course, normal to teach someone, but probably cued in a way that didn't align for my structure. Yeah. Um, and therefore, I would, you know, jack up my lumbar spine. I wasn't extending properly through the hips. Like I wasn't allowed to externally rotate maybe as much as I needed to. My mm. ankle mobility was compromised and I wasn't, you know, elevating shoes because I was told not to. Like there was lots of things that I was probably cued that led to dysfunctional movement patterns that I just repeated for a long period of time. Um, and I never had that with upper body. And I've always found like upper body, like I'm pretty strong with my upper body, but I've mm. got a biased belief. I'm like, I've never actually been trained to move my upper body. It's been what feels right, what setup feels right, where do I want to put my wrists, my grip, um, what feels comfortable going through a full range of motion. Um, and, yeah, like that's just my experience with my own recovery and injuries as well. Yeah, and all the reason why you, you know, couldn't um, jump any quicker at the idea of becoming your own coach. I remember going through <laughs> all of those phases with you and you had, you know, you, we take lessons from other people but your training journey was almost tainted by someone else's lens which mm. was unfortunate but now you know it's a blessing because you took that as a lesson and go oh my god that sucked like it led to injury but now I know how to overcome it you know now I know the value of setting up um and you mentioned it so well like repetitive movements and dysfunctional movements that's what can lead to injury so mm. people who generally get injured in upper body it's a lot of workplace so hours on the computer without moving in the other direction or painters you get a lot of those musicians mm. um it's quite interesting so that's when perhaps the cueing would be beneficial for those people because the injury came from positions that they're spending their time in and they might not have the training awareness that you beautifully have so then minimal cueing is needed for those people as well but for mm. you it was a blessing you know to not have someone come and infiltrate your knowledge and make you second guess yourself because you know what you're doing um, but for the majority unfortunately they don't know but it, as you mentioned under cueing is always great and to put your clients in positions that's very much what you know we we love doing Put them in the position and, and we say, okay, move your knee that way or lift mm. your leg to the ceiling or whatever movement it is. Um, that's what gets the result rather than overcomplicating everything, like what we mentioned about language. Mm. Keep it simple. Mm. Cueing should be like supplements, don't you reckon? Like it should be like less is more. It should be like minimum effective dose and it should be individualized. That's the way yes. I think of it. Like what supplements I need is probably different to what you need, Danny. Um, and, you know, we don't want everyone on like 15 different supplements for a day. We want them on the minimum and then eventually we want their normal diet to be able to supplement a lot of those cues and you just do it automatically. Yep. Because, yeah, like I think a lot of people just give out generalized cues. And to me, I'm like, um, I don't know. I don't know. Like it just doesn't work um, for everyone. And like you said, like occupation has a huge impact on someone's training program absolutely i can first-handedly experience that from going from a shift worker to a business desk worker yeah. um it completely changed the way i prepare my body for training and just i have to um, i guess increase my activity and do things i've never had to do just because my occupations change and it takes up the majority of our day so we should never ever um i guess just blanket term like exercise prescription selection cueing like all of these things because it just depends on so many variables and that's that's a, not, not sexy. Do you know what I mean? It's so much more sexy just to tell someone to save this workout. 
<laughs> Isn't it? And yeah, one click of a button and apparently all your life's problems are solved. No, it's not that easy, guys. But um, we also discussed before we move on just um, one more thing around how important is it to have a prescribed mm. warm-up versus not. Um, so the prescribed warm-up is brilliant for someone who is new into their training or into the idea of even having a warm-up. Again, I prescribe warm-ups for athletes who are in the Olympics and all of that. And I'm not saying that as a flex, but I'm just saying that so people don't get the false impression that only newbies um, need all of this. You know, some of the strongest athletes in the world require exercise prescription because that order is specific to them. Now, for other people perhaps with not as specific goals or they don't have injury or dysfunction, you know, like yourself who are so well in tuned with your training, you probably wake up and go, mm, my hip could use a little bit more mobility today. I'll just go with that. Or let me go through this warm up. You know how to do it yourself. But in the case of um, specificity, again, people who are quite injured, people who have a sporting um, like output, I love using exercise prescription. Um, also in a fact that it's an art form to be able to trick your strong muscles to not work straight away. So, for example, if someone's lacking hip extension, I'm not going to give them hip extension straight off the bat. You might give a little bit of abduction. So, you know, external rotation as well. Core work, because hip extension can be overcompensated by the lower back. So you sort of give everything else first, get those muscles going, core, wake up the glutes gently in, in a normal sense. And then we go to hip extension because often the body doesn't feel safe to move in that movement. So everything else jumps in. The lower back's like, I'll do it. You don't feel safe. You're not stable. So you almost need to prove to that muscle that it's stable by introducing all the other ones. And then hip extension happens. That's kind of my, I love explaining it in kind of an emotional way. You kind of imagine the muscles to be like people kind of thing. I don't know. That's my layman's terms of explaining. Hopefully it lands with some people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, absolutely. Like the approach I like to take with clients is like when they first start with us, we would generally prescribe warm-ups um, and get them in tune with their body and show them mm. what a warm-up should look like and expose them to different styles of warm-ups and different things. And then eventually we like to take them away and I like to go, okay, tune into your body. What do you feel like you need? And as you mentioned, like we're not, um, we do have Talia who works as sort of like clients that are injured, but, and she's very specific with that style of stuff as well in terms of the warm ups and the exercise selection that she gives them. Yeah. Um, but as, as you mentioned, like for clients that have good body awareness, um, they're moving pain free uh, and they're, they're quite in tune with their body and they do want to be able to have a little bit more independence with that style um, of coaching, then that's absolutely what we do because full transparency, it's what I do. Um, like you said, I go into right. the gym and I go, what does my body need today? Because some days I'm really active. Other days I spend a lot of time at the desk. Um, yes. And a lot of the time it is like movement is always going to be helpful. I love warming up my body, like blood flow wise, usually five minutes of cardio just to get my um, my core body temperature up. And then I'll do literally a check-in with my body. Obviously it depends if it's upper or lower body day, um, yes. but usually like some hip thrusting stuff, lots of warm up sets, a bit of mobility. And I love doing like, how's my ankle mobility today? You know, how's my hip mobility today? Do I need some 90-90s? Do I need to move around a little bit? And yeah, that's generally the way that I approach warm-ups. And that's great. I mean, you've got like an, an abundance of movements and ideas in your head and then you tune in with yourself. You go, what did I do today? How do I feel? Which tool am I going to use? And that's, that's perfectly, like mm -hmm. that's how it's done. So that's mm -hmm. awesome. 
Yeah, very good. Let's move on. <laughs> Moving on to the uh, probably one that underpins a lot of what we've even already spoke about is exercise selection for muscle building or hypertrophy. Yeah. Um, and this is where I think a lot of the uh, debate comes from, like people getting sort of optimal versus practical and excluding exercises and, and whatever it might be. And I know we've spoken about exercise selection a lot in the past um, and sort of what our biased opinions are as well. But there's a lot of, I guess, clickbait stuff going around at the moment, even about like for the biggest one, which everyone's probably going to be able to relate to is sumo versus conventional deadlifts. Yes. And I think it honestly literally just comes back down to what we spoke about before of like, well, what's someone's body? Like, how am I going to know what deadlift suits you? Like, it really does depend. I know what deadlift suits me, right? Like, and I know what deadlift suits a lot of my clients, like what style, depending on their body. But for me to just get on a public platform and say, generalize this for everyone listening, um, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I love using sumos for lower back rehab if their hip sockets allow them to get into that stance because mm. obviously sumos being a wider stance, but that allows the lower back to be more upright and it's less loading on the lumbar spine. So it is actually a fantastic tool for rehab or to introduce someone into picking something off the ground. It can be with a kettlebell. It doesn't even have to be with a barbell. Mm -hmm. So for the whole people, you know, sumo is cheating and all of that, that's more powerlifting lingo that has yeah. bled into our world because mm -hmm. with sumos, you can lift a heavier weight. It's a shorter distance off the ground, um, kind of like an arch in a bench press. So the whole sumo is cheating. I think people have heard that phrase and going, oh, what, should I not sumo deadlift? No, that's just banter between powerlifters, to be honest. Absolutely. And I think like even with deadlifting, right, like I think people are getting too confused about the exercise selection and, again, not going back to the basics of just the movement pattern because not everyone has to do a back squat. Not everyone has to do a conventional deadlift. Like there is no one exercise that you need to do. There's only movement patterns that you need to include. And there was a long period of time that I didn't do conventional deadlifts, but I was Romanian deadlifting like you know, until the cows come home and I was doing back extension, I was doing kickbacks and I was training the movement pattern in other ways. Um, Just something, because let's be honest, like conventional deadlifts and sumos, like you get strong on them and you've also got to not just be, like you've got to zoom out, look at the rest of your program um, yeah. and like your experience level as well. And for a big one, I was like, you know, for the amount of um, nervous system fatigue that conventionals are going to put me under, for the amount of load, for the amount of warm-up sets, for the amount of time, I'm just going to do a Romanian deadlift that has more of an eccentric face. Uh, my goal is muscle building and glute building at the moment. I'm going to focus on strength with that and I'm still going to be training um, a hip hinge movement pattern. Tick, tick, tick. Good. It doesn't mean that your program is less or more um, if you have some of these movements or if you don't. It just it really depends on the rest of your program and what your actual goal is. Yeah, and that's when people get mixed up and they want to do the big three lifts, you know, squat, deadlift, bench, but then they also want to be a bodybuilder and then they want yes. everything and then they want to do yoga. Mm. It's like, guys, <laughs> if you look at each training individually, they're all very different. You know, you and I do a lot of power building where we combine strength with um, hypertrophy. Love doing it. Mm. We still both go through phases where we use barbells, where we don't, just to mix it up and all of those reasons that you mentioned. But a true power lifter would spend one to two hours on that one lift. Great. Like, that's a lot of time and they're 
exhausted and everything depends on that number on the day. So Mm -hmm. if you really have that goal to get super strong, you need to consider that that's actually what it takes. You can't do three sets of deadlifts with the bar and then move on to all of your bodybuilding work. It just, you will gas out and you will become, you won't become an expert at that lift. So people need to actually have that realization that true strength training looks very different to hypertrophy or power building. So people are getting disheartened. They're like, oh my God, like, I'm like so-and-so lifts this much weight and they're actually a power lifter. Mm. It's like, well, that's, that's okay. You know, your, your programming isn't for that. If it Mm. is, we can change it, but you want to get good at all these things too. Let yourself like focus on the other wins, guys. People are putting too much emphasis on what's on the bar. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to writing a training program as well, the number one principle is specificity, which is what you mentioned um, earlier, Danny. And that means being specific um, with what you're trying to achieve. And I think this comes down to knowing what you're actually trying to work towards. Like a lot of clients will come to you with a goal. um, But as a coach, we don't see goal. We see adaptation. What is the adaptation that that client needs? Is it conditioning? Is it strength? Is it um, athleticism, like power and speed, or is it um, hypertrophy? Like what is the adaptation that they need? Now, obviously, we need to remember that people are people and we have, you know, other needs for training and exercising, like emotions, et cetera. Um, but when we when we can understand that we're working towards an adaptation, we can remove that bias and, you know, look at the program with without a fixed mindset and think, oh, well, they – I believe everyone should be doing conventional. So they must be doing conventionals. Like if their adaptation is muscle growth, it's a great adaptation because you can't really screw it up. There's so many ways that you can do it. Mm. Um, and it's really going to depend. And I love that you said like, you know, because we can bleed some of the adaptations together. Like you said, power work or, or strength and bodybuilding. That's, they're probably two adaptations that can go nicely together. But even when I was going through comp preps, for example, I always had to go, okay, well, I can have everything, but not everything at once. Like I can be a bodybuilder, but I can't also be a strength athlete at the same time. And if I want to do well in my sport or if I want to do well at the adaptation I'm trying to get, I need to forego some of the other things that aren't going to be helpful. And fatigue management is massive when you're um, put under a lot of stress in any sport or any extreme or anything. And one of the biggest reasons why I took conventionals out for a long period of time is because the fatigue it generated was not worth the outcome when I could just pick a different exercise that allowed me to use less weight but generate more tension right and when you understand principles above just things that people scream on the internet you can make those intellectual decisions and make really solid training programs and actually get to your goal quicker and with less friction I love that yeah and and when I had inconsistencies in my training due to travel Mm -hmm. I took out those lifts because if you're to do them well you need week to week to week and sometimes even twice weekly of that movement pattern so for me to go from aeroplanes mix up my sleep and all of that I go to put myself doing heavy deadlifts is not the right move right now I'm going to take that out and do what I can at all the new gyms under more fatigue so you really need to just put your ego away and go hey what's my situation that I'm in how can I maximize it and then again just try things that you haven't before it's not just about oh this is the only way being closed-minded really just sets you up for failure because life is so fluid and so many different things happen in life. The real art is to be able to mold your training and and your goals into your lifestyle. Mm, absolutely and it just depends and I was chatting with one of my clients the other day who's a coach and I've got her in like a just a really um like dominant bodybuilding phase at the moment of just Mm -hmm. training and 
she, I was sort of explaining the program to her and, you know, traditionally when you write a program and there's no right or wrong, like when it comes to anything, but traditionally when a lot of people write a program, it'll be like heavy compounds at the start, like maybe a deadlift, et cetera. And then it might go into like more um, like, you know, unilateral or leg press or like another sort of stronger movement. And then you'll finish with like light accessory stuff. That's a mm. general like runway. And it's a great runway for a lot of people to start with, you know, the most complex heavy movements at the start, et cetera. But something I love doing with bodybuilding um, phases specifically is like flipping it and having more of your accessory target muscle groups that you're trying to bring up. Like maybe it's glutes, like a kickback or something like that. And then maybe a unilateral movement um, for symmetry, et cetera. And then finishing with some of your more compound movements that they um, might be really strong on. Uh, And again, this is an advanced bodybuilding thing as well. I wouldn't do it for a beginner, but someone who's quite advanced, they can finish their workout with a squat or a Romanian deadlift or something that is quite taxing because one, the skill's probably not going to break down like what it would for a beginner and two they're going to be like they're going to be able to use less load because they're already fatigued from all the other movements which is great because the amount of weight that you move is not tension like weight is not tension weight is not intensity it's just one variable that we can create it so there's so many variables that you can use when you understand the adaptation that you're trying to get and like even listening to myself say that I'm like how are you going to put that on a freaking reel like you just you can't you just can't And that's perfect because you have the adaptation or the the client's goal in mind. And when you're on a bodybuilding stage, it's about symmetry um, and how you're moving, like posing and all of that. No one goes, okay, number 27, how much do you squat? Like it's, that's not the competition. <laughs> yeah. you know? So you put that at the end and that's perfect. That's a great example of working with your client's goals and the adaptations they need. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what's next? What do you want to talk about Oh, next? I do just want to say there are people that say that sumo deadlifts don't work your glutes. I mean, you've got the people that say it's more reductors, this, that, which is fine. But I just want one sentence. So at the end of the day, um, the action of the glutes are extension, external rotation, and abduction. In mm. a sumo deadlift, you get extension, external rotation, and abduction. The yeah. end. And again, <laughs> optimal versus practical. It's different for each person as but well. But you're never not going to get glutes working in a sumo. There yeah, are people yeah. that are saying that straight up and that needs to go. They need to open their textbook and go, oh, yeah, what's the action of the hip? Yeah, of course you're going to get glutes. <laughs> of course you're going to get glutes. But, yeah, I, I, it floats around. And, again, it's just the clickbait stuff that sort of, you know, triggers some people and, you know, do what you want with the information but just be mindful and always come back to, you know, what's what's the research say but then also, like, what does my own experience and everything generate towards too? Because the last thing we ever want to do is discourage anyone from doing any exercise. Like, all exercise is great. And I think sometimes people forget that, like the majority of people um, are unmotivated to train and they feel like they they feel disempowered going to the gym and they, they get so confused and, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're overwhelmed and they just think, well, I might as well not do anything. Is anything right? Like this is what exactly. a lot of this information can lead to and it's it's not helpful for anyone. It's like trying to learn gymnastics and then all of a sudden you log on to the internet and people are like, this is how you do a triple somersault with a handstand and this and that. I'd be like, Okay, gymnastics is not for me. Yes. You know, it's such a put off. 
Exactly. Well, the other thing I really wanted to talk about as well, because we have covered a lot of um, indirectly, a lot of the the points that we wanted to, but sometimes the goal of, I guess, sometimes the best way to build muscle is not always focusing on building muscle. And that's something I wanted to say, because it comes under exercise selection. They'll go, well, that's not the most optimal exercise, like what you're saying for sumo, like that's not the most optimal exercise for building muscle. And it's like, yeah, well, maybe, maybe. I'm saying it is optimal, but yes. Yeah, no, no. But I'm saying Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe be like for that person that's it got depends. back pain. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. maybe for that person with that stance, with that hip structure, for their goal, where they're at, the regression, like what their journey is, maybe it is the best for them. Um, and you can't you can't argue that because everyone's going to be different. And a really good example is like an exercise that I'm doing at the moment, which I got met with the other day of like, well, that's not a very smart exercise. Is a um someone a, say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What was um, it? A snatch grip Romanian deadlift. How's that not smart? Well, I can understand what, if, again, if I For was. what? If I was, exactly. Yeah. If I <laughs> was thinking that the amount of weight that I moved was directly correlated with muscle growth, if I believed that the weight was the tension only, um, then that would be true because adopting a snatched grip, I'm going to be weaker. Like I'm not going to be as strong as if I was holding a normal RDL. Um, but the goal of a snatch grip is not necessarily the goal of a standard grip. Like the reason why I'm doing a snatch grip is to further ingrain my hip extension pattern because you can't, like a, I love using snatch grip as a teaching tool, um, but it's, it's also to develop more upper body strength and mid-back strength because it's the thing that breaks down in a Romanian deadlift when I can hinge over 100 kilos now. Mm. It's not helpful just to keep increasing reps and reps. Sometimes I need to regress to progress and regression is not a bad thing thing um like lowering the weight doesn't mean you're going backwards that's the art of programming you need to go back and go how can i make more weight how sorry how can i make less weight feel harder and that's going to be by changing the exercise selection because i need to develop isometric strength in my back to further progress my normal rdl so when i bring that back in I'll be stronger because my grip strength, my mid-back, my lumbar spine, my core, all of these things are going to be able to be stronger and therefore it's going to bleed into the the following training programs. So you can't isolate one exercise, one workout, one training block and say that's not a good decision because Mm. that training block depends on the previous one but then it also depends on the next one. Yeah, so that person would have seen you doing a snatch grip RDL straight away, put their lens on what good training is, and apparently they think it's always just about how much weight's on the bar and then made that comment where you've actually, as you mentioned, brought that in because it is harder on purpose because you want to still practice the hip hinge but then strengthen your upper back. So then when you go back to the other pattern, you're much stronger. Yeah. Come on, people. I know. Silly people. <laughs> I know. And the other one that I think comes up a lot because I use this a lot with clients is a front squat. Um, yes, great. We use a front squat a lot because, like, obviously loading anteriorly, you're going to strengthen a lot of those core muscles. But then I also find that it um it helps people just squat in a more efficient way rather than like hinging all the time um it allows them to really know the proper um i guess structures of squatting up and down like using your quads using your knees pushing knees over toes like those sorts of things and it also highlights a lot of weaknesses like everyone hates front squats because we've all got limitations um Mm -hmm. usually doing them and as a coach that's great i'm like okay cool i can see this this ankle mobility that you know um upper body strength like wrist mobility i can see so many limitations to work on uh and this is why you know it's not always about 
about muscle building. Sometimes it's about making sure that you can work through limitations, refine movement patterns, like of course, but that comes to exercise selection. And I think in the online space, exercise selection um, as a teaching tool to put people in better positions is one of the best ways to go about it because you're not there in person queuing. So if you can put a barbell, um, like a front squat, for example, like I just said, or a snatch grip, like, and have them go, oh, I can't even, like that's, and you go, okay, cool, here's some things to work on. I know what not to do, um, but then I also know what to do with your next program. And that's bloody brilliant, Trana. That's great. I love this episode. I love all of them, but this is fun. Um, Obviously, we just love training, but um, perfect what you said with the front squat. And for those who, and we've spoken about this as well, goblet squats are great. It forces, as you mentioned, the person to brace their core. If someone Mm. can't understand, so let's just say you've got a client with butt wink down the bottom their lumbar spine's rounding you tried elevating their heels and it's a little bit better um, but they're still rounding down the bottom you get them to hold a weight at their chest or out in front and counterweight in front counterweight in front beautiful counterbalance squat allows them to indirectly or subconsciously brace their core otherwise they'll just topple over And then the result would be a more upright squat without the butt wink. So Mm. you tell them. And then if they want the education behind it, great. But some people don't. Some people you can just say, hold this down in front of you. And then it just works. Other Mm. people might say, oh, do you mind explaining why I'm doing this? And then you explain. We don't have to always just go straight in for the information overload. Less is more, as we've been saying. Pop a weight in their hands and then show them the difference. Yeah, absolutely. It's so fun. Unpopular opinion as well, but Ooh. when it comes to exercise selection, like I've actually found the stronger I get, the less I feel like I get out of a hip thrust because the more I have to load it up and the more I have to gas myself with it. And I find even using things like, for example, like a kickback, I can get to failure um, without having to use as much weight, as much setup, unless you've got a glute drive, like you, Danny. Uh, but yeah. as much setup, there's so many ways like that you can achieve the same thing. And I think people, yeah. again, they they put a, like they champion certain exercises and they go, this is the king. If you're not doing this in your program, like you may as well just not be training at all. And it's sort of like, <laughs> it's, it's not the case. It's so black and white, but honestly, it's the way that most people think. Yeah, well, if you max out on a lift and if that lift, like a barbell hip thrust, takes a long time to set up, you know, you might be disrupting other people in the gym. It's just not an ideal scenario. You might have, yeah, been put X amount of plates on and you actually can't go any heavier. Mm. Um, then there's no point continuing. You might top it up every now and then just to to keep with the movement. Maintain or you might come it, to yeah. Pado and sit on the glute drive with me and we have a fun time. <laughs> um, but, yeah, let's change the position. You can still get hip extension. Like a kickback, for example, it's on one leg you add in that stability element that is not challenged when you're doing a barbell hip thrust. So it's about, yeah, adding um, every single type of of glute movement, for example. But then if you max one out, you don't keep trying to max that out. Use your initiative and go, cool, let's get the same similar movement pattern, but now in upright because mm, I've been yeah. horizontal. So yeah, love yeah. that. Really cool. Yeah. And the same thing is like what I said with the snatch grip RDL, you know, yes. like there's no point just keep maxing out on like a huge amount of load because strength is a skill, right? And if you're practicing a skill for a long period of time, you're going to get really strong at it to the point where I'm like, 
oh, something else is going to break down before my glutes do, you know, and that's why yeah. it's important to sort of regress and go, okay, well, you know, even with your hip thrust, I think a lot of people underestimate, you know, how much your core and your lower back and like even your shoulders, Quads, like getting the shoulders. bar up, like mm. there's a lot of other muscles um, just involved in the setup process um, and getting yourself in position that people neglect the strength of. And this is why, like, I think we should be training every muscle in our body if we can at certain stages, obviously with it, when um, programming it's we have to prioritize we can't work everything at once yes um we have to prioritize but this is why i'm really big on just training every muscle like hip flexors like every muscle if we need to train it like we should be training it at some stage to make sure that for those instances you know you're getting under 150 kilo dumbbell i'm um, sorry not dumbbell barbell Oof. Oof, for a hip thrust which isn't uncommon now no right? like a lot of people thrusting some serious weight um you've got to ask yourself okay is there a better way that i can get the same stimulus or adaptation oh yeah and that's when we talk about you know tempo pauses all mm. of that amazing stuff but um Definitely love that. And it's important to know because people think, oh, no, if I move from a barbell to a cable, that's a regression. Well, no, it's just different. It's similar but different. So it's not yeah. a regression. Again, we need to stop glorifying just heavy weight on a bar and that's the only thing. There's mm -hmm. so many other tools to use and so many other goals to have unless you are a powerlifter. Yes. Even then you need accessory work. You still need mobility. Um, fantastic. Can we just move on to one more being the body does not adapt to poor technique under high loads. Mm. So you get the people that, again, have something against um, therapists and clinicians saying if it's not just about technique, that's what they're saying. They're going, it's not just about technique. If you round your back in a deadlift, your body will adapt. And my thought is you're allowed to pick something off the ground with a rounded back, guys. Don't think that every single movement needs to be robotic, hip hinge. Our joints are fluid for a reason. And you'd cringe if you can see me move my arms around like an octopus. Well, you might on the Zoom. Who knows? <laughs> Our joints are fluid and, and are meant to move for a reason, for function, so we can get up, get down, climb. You know, back in the day, we'd be climbing rocks and doing all that stuff. Now, the aim isn't to be robotic in everyday life. Mm. However, the aim is to be smart with your technique in the gym. So there are most optimal ways to lift a weight. For example, with a deadlift, the idea is to keep as close to your neutral, and it doesn't mean dead straight. Neutral can be within a couple of degrees of the spine. Um, the aim is to stay within your neutral when you lift. Mm -hmm. For all of those people who progress and think if you have flexion movement under load, i.e. your back rounds as you're lifting, if you think that that's a good idea, it is definitely not. It is the recipe for a disc herniation. If you're slightly flexed already and you lift the weight without the segmental movement, that is okay. But it is the segmental flexion under load in a deadlift that can cause disc herniation. Mm. When it comes to Jefferson curls, so if you haven't seen it, Google it. It's where you've got a bar in your hand and you're curling down slowly. And then you'd say, well, Danny, isn't that segmental flexion? Yes, it is. But you don't go straight to doing that with 100 kilos on the bar. You you practice that technique. So that would be the correct technique for the Jefferson curl. There's a big difference between exercise breakdown under load versus practicing movement under load in a planned program. Mm, yeah, really well said because, again, a lot of people 
I think I think where the issue is is a lot of like even practitioners they put fear for a lot of this um like mm. the stuff like the Jefferson curl and stuff and it's again not helpful. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, like, it's no not fear. helpful. No fear, um, because your body can adapt um, to pretty much any movement that you put it under, yep. whether that's positive or negative, right? Like it's just going to adapt. I mean, you see the little old ladies with big hunched over spines and they just adapt Always. and they fix there, right? Because um, they're stuck in that movement. Um, but, yeah, with a, even with the Jefferson curl, like, you know, you can see some people move some frigging big weight doing that, but they've progressively overloaded that movement to be able to get there. It's no different for any other movement as well. Yes, yes. Um, a lot of people, you know, throw shade on Stuart McGill for potentially putting fear in clients. But again, that's not the case. Like um, I've learned a lot from him when it comes to acute disc injury. So you do need to educate your clients on what the aggravating factors are for their pain. So mm. yes, at the start, if someone comes to you in severe pain, you wouldn't get them to do the things that provokes the pain. And, and sometimes even tying up your shoe when you're bent over or brushing your teeth bent over over the sink can actually aggravate some acute disc injuries. So when we advise, okay, stand a little bit more upright when you're brushing your teeth or bring your shoe to your chest instead, that's not to say you must fear this movement. Mm -hmm. That's just to say now is a good time to avoid the movement that hurts you. Let's fix that and work on that. And then we'll bring that that way of living back in down the track. It's not mm -hmm. just like, no, you mustn't do that forever. It's like, Now's not the time. Just Absolutely. like any training program, now's not the time. Here's what we can do instead. Mm. And I think as well, like a lot of people, like like no one talks about the psychology of pain too. Like if you've injured yourself doing something, a lot of people have um, like a, like limiting beliefs and physical pain just from like reliving that because it's almost like a memory that's formed um, and it takes a long time to unlearn that. And the way we unlearn it is by slowly, progressively getting them back into that movement. So not only is their body physically capable because pain can last for a lot, lot longer than the actual injury, right? It's about also putting, the, like giving them confidence. And this is why, if someone's hurt themselves deadlifting, like I automatically think, okay, well, how can we get you back to deadlifting in a yeah. safe way? Because we can't have you fearing that. Like I've done that before where I've mm. sort of like been intimidated by a back squat where I'm like, oh, I'm just not a good squatter, you know, and mm. that was a limiting belief. And now I'm like, I'm a great squatter. Like once I actually got my hip extension refined and like, you know, bring up like all the muscles and, and um, I guess like strength across my body and like everything that I've been through yeah. for the last few years and I can get back into squatting and go, okay, like I'm actually a great squatter and I don't fear any movement, like none. you like, I will always know where I need to regress and like maybe what I need to do when I first start something new. Like if I first introduce snatch grip or if I first introduce front squat, like let's just start with the bar, let's get the movement until mm -hmm. you feel confident. You'll probably find you'll be able to whack the weights on until a certain point. And that's great. Like that's what training should be about is reintroducing different movement patterns that complement your goal um, and where you're at so that you're always progressing along uh, a journey because I think people get stuck in like, you know, squat, push, pull, press, and even though they're movement patterns, but particular ways of doing it um, mm -hmm. and they don't deviate outside. So they actually set themselves up for like injury later on because yes. they're just sticking to the same movement, the same stances, the same everything. And our body's not designed to do that. Our body's designed to adapt and move and change so that when we do get thrown in unpredictable um, movements, like, you know, reaching or grabbing something or being pulled or whatever our body is strengthened in those ranges too 
Fantastic. Oh, that's it. I reckon that's great. That's yeah. we, we could talk about this for two hours. Should we do a bit uh-huh. of a wrap up? Or yeah, I really need to go to the toilet. Oh, <laughs> Shiraz holding on for a wee, <laughs> and she's drinking. All right. <laughs> The key takeaways, I think the number one um, is regarding context and knowing your audience. Number one. Yeah, absolutely. And being selective with your learning. Like don't be scared to like name your biased opinions. Like don't be scared to have them. We all have biased opinions. But then be flexible and, you know, have that growth mindset that we always come back to because there's always something to learn. And honestly, people that are black and white, they probably know the least. Like if you listen (laughs) to anyone significant, they're always like, look, it depends. And they're giving disclaimers because they know the repercussions of black and white advice. And they also know that it's not really authentic. Um, So always be selective with who you're learning from. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's so much conflicting information out there and you might be looking at two figureheads that you you really like. It doesn't mean you have to pick sides. Take little parts out of what Absolutely. everyone's advising. Try it on yourself. Try it on your clients and then formulate your own methods Absolutely. based on what you like doing. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can learn from a number of different people, but it doesn't mean that you need to back everything that they say. I think that's so Mm. important because there's a lot of people that I respect um, in the industry. There's a lot of people I love learning from, but like I never agree with 100% of everything that they say and do. And why should I? My experiences and my biased opinions are different as well. And that's what makes me me. That's what makes me as a coach. So don't feel like you have to model everything that, you know, your favorite coach or mentor or influencer says and does. You're allowed to disagree. Just do it with respect. Yes. And one for anyone in business, remember to protect your reputation over your ego. If you get triggered by someone's post, take a deep breath and say, do I need to respond? Yes or no? Because it's so easy to jump in. But once your comment's out there, it's going to be screenshotted and sent to everyone, guaranteed. So always protect your reputation. Yeah. What triggers you teaches you. Something I always like to remind. I always like to go, why am I triggered and hot by this? (laughs) I don't care. But like you said, does it mean that I need to respond right now? Probably not. If anything, it's actually probably the worst thing I could probably do. Literally. (laughs) Um, How good. But yeah, I I hope that ties everything together of, you know, we probably made the, the conversation more confusing. <laughs> but we, I hope we gave some clarity. Um, but, but this is honestly just some of the, the things that have been going through our minds, like as we've been seeing everything unfold over the last six to 12 months. So we'd love to hear like your opinions. I'm not sure whether it's just us on the other side going, is anyone else confused or are some of these things getting a bit hot and messy on the internet? Um, but yeah, as always, we hope you did enjoy it. And if you did, please do take a screenshot and share it on your Instagram story. Thanks, everyone.